We're going to talk now about um, about disobedience to the law of God. <clears throat> what is disobedience to the law of God? We've already talked about love and what love is, and sin. In contrast to that, sin. In contrast to that, is to choose to do what is not for the highest well-being of God and of others. Okay. Love is a choice. Sin is therefore a choice because sin is to not love. Okay? The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is selfishness. Because to love is to choose for the highest well-being of God and his created universe according to their relative order of value. And to anything other than that is sin. To choose anything other than the highest well-being of God and his created universe is sin. So we're going to talk about what is rebellion against the law of God, what is sin, because a lot of people have funny ideas about what sin is and what sin is not. And so they have trouble understanding why God imposes sanctions such as exclusion from the privileges of God's government and uh, people going to a place separated from God for all eternity because of some something that they have in them. We're going to talk about what sin is and what it is not, but the first thing we're going to talk about is what it is not. Okay, we're going to define it negatively first by talking about what it is not. Sin is not, number one, sin is not a thing. Sin is not a thing. It has no metaphysical existence. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. This is a little test. You rate these things as good Evil or neutral? Food. Sex. Sleep. Money. Friends. Power. Okay. See, all these things are neutral. The Bible says, I'm convinced of the, Paul said, I'm convinced of the Lord Jesus, there is nothing unclean in itself. See, sin is not a thing. There is no thing called a sin. When you make the choice to sin, it does not create anything metaphysically. There is not an essence or a substance. There is not so much sin floating around, diffused through the ether of the universe, <laughs> or something like that. It is, not, it is not a thing. Number two, sin is not a mistake. Well, I guess I made a mistake, person says, when they, when they lied, you know. I guess I made a mistake. No, you did not make a mistake. <laughs> no, you chose to do this. Contrary to the law of God that you know, you knew it was wrong to, to communicate something that was, that was not true. You knew it was wrong to communicate something that was not true, and yet you did it anyway. And so, first of all, you're not guessing. I guess I made a mistake. You're not guessing. You know that you did something that was wrong, and it's not a mistake to lie. It's a sin. And so, sin is not a mistake. We do make mistakes, and that implies that we have a lack of knowledge. We can think that what we're doing is for the highest well-being of someone because we have a lack of knowledge because our mind is finite. And so, <clears throat> if we don't check with God and find out exactly what should be done, we can make mistakes. I don't believe that we're culpable for a mistake. When we do what we think is best for somebody else, but it is not, 
because of a lack of knowledge, then that is a mistake. I'll give you an instance of that example. <clears throat> I thought Carol wanted a particular thing for a Christmas present, and then one day she said that she really wanted something else. And I thought, and this is really strange, I thought she wanted this other thing. So then when she said she really wanted this other thing, I got her the other thing. Then I found out that that wasn't what she wanted. What she really wanted was the first thing that she had stated. Okay? And there was, there was a miscommunication that took place, and therefore a misunderstanding, and I was acting with the proper motives, wanting to get my wife the Christmas present that she wanted, but my understanding was wrong because of a miscommunication. Okay? So I made a mistake, but I didn't sin because my motives were right. So your motives can be right, and yet you can still do something that can even be hurtful to another person. Or as one person put it, you can have evil and culpable evil. <laughs> right? You can have evil and culpable evil. The word evil in the Hebrew in the Old Testament is used two different ways. It is used for, the Bible speaks of God doing evil. Did you know that? It speaks of God doing evil. But the word evil is used two different ways in the Hebrew. One way means to do something that you know is wrong, to do something evil, to sin. The other way means some kind of judgment, calamity, destruction. It's, it's a neutral thing. It depends on what context it's in. See? And so the Bible says that God sent an evil spirit. An evil spirit came from the Lord and tormented, tormented Saul. It does not necessarily mean that the spirit itself was evil. What it means is that it was bringing judgment on Saul. So it could have very well been a, a, a good angel but was bringing judgment on him and so it was referred to as an evil spirit because it brought judgment or god is spoken of as bringing evil or creating good and evil but um, most modern translations translate that creating peace and calamity because okay? it's talking in that context about god's bringing judgment on the people okay so sin is not a mistake if you make a mistake, it's not a sin. If you sin, it wasn't a mistake. <laughs> you meant to do it. Number three, sin is not unavoidable. Now, I know that's a negative, negative definition, but... How many of you are there? Okay. Um, yeah, come out. Um, sin is not unavoidable. That means that we can avoid sin. We do not have to sin. And boy, um, this is a bit radical for, I know, a lot of you have probably been, probably been taught or it has been implied to you that you can't help but sin and that you have an excuse for your sin because you can't help but sin. And you hear things like this, well, we're all human, so we all sin. You know? Well, we are all human, that is true, and it may be very true that most of us sin too. But uh, that's not, there's no connection there necessarily, you see, because Jesus was human and he didn't sin. So to say that it's, we sin because we're human is not accurate because Jesus was a human. And if you say that, then you have to say Jesus had to sin because he was a human. Okay? Having a physical body, too, sometimes we get the impression that we have to sin because we have a physical body or that we're evil because we have a physical body. Well, look, the devil is sinless and he doesn't, I'm, excuse me, the devil is sinful and he doesn't have a physical body. Jesus was sinless and had a physical body. So obviously the physical body is not the problem. 
whether you have or don't have a physical body because the enemy does not have a physical body but he is sinful right so you don't have to have a physical body to sin our bodies are not our problem people have real problems with the justice of god and i have problems with the justice of god the other way around some people say why why does god judge us and condemn us and send us to hell for something that we can't help doing You ever thought about that? Okay. If you say that man must sin, he must do what is wrong, okay, and you make excuses for sin, then God is judging people and sending them to hell for something that they can't help doing. Now, is that fair? No, it's not fair. Okay. So then, if God is judging people and, and they're condemned by their choices, then they must be able to choose to do something else. Okay? They must be able to do that. He could only fairly judge a person to be guilty if they could or if they could have done what was right, but chose to do what was wrong. A lot of people say, can we keep the law of God? Well, the Bible is very clear about it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Anybody here have a revised standard? You have a revised standard? Okay. Would you look up Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, please? I'm going to read this. For this commandment, for this commandment which I command you today, huh? Yeah, I'm looking for a revised standard version of, of 1951 or whatever it is. Okay. Just a moment. I'll read this. Are you ready to listen? For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Would you please read very loudly verse 14? You can do it. Okay? And in verse 11, it says, it is not too difficult for you. When he says, this commandment which I command you today He's talking about everything in the book of Deuteronomy, which includes the Ten Commandments, includes loving and serving God, everything. Because uh, Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, was rehearsing. Book Deuteronomy means second law. It was when Moses was rehearsing the whole law in the ears of the people so that they would remember them when they came into the land. And he said, it is not too difficult for you. You can do it. Okay? Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 6. 24 and 25. Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. Right? Moses seemed to think that the people could keep all of the commandments of God. 
So the problem is a lot of people, when they read the Old Testament, have their blinders on. And because they've been taught that people under the Old Testament had to keep the law of God without knowing God, which does not say that in the Old Testament, um, they read with their blinders on and they miss statements like this. You shall fear the Lord your God and love him, listen to his voice and walk with him and observe all his commandments and all his statutes. You see? And they read things like that and they pick up on the, keep all his commandments and all his statutes and they go, well, we, they couldn't do that. But the first part of the verse says the, is the basis for why they could do that. Because they were never intended to keep the statutes and the commandments without knowing God. They were to fear him, love him, listen to his voice, walk with him, serve him. Those are things that are mentioned um, almost every time that it says uh, keep his commandments. It says something like that before that. See? You shall serve him, listen to his voice, love him, walk with him, obey him, and keep his commandments and his ordinances. People ask me sometimes after I teach this, they say, are you saying then that man can keep the law of God without God? No, I'm not. Because the, the law of God is to love God. You cannot keep the law of God without God because that is the law. <laughs> to know God. To live in relationship with him is the law. That's our responsibility, to live in a love relationship with him. That's our responsibility. So no, you cannot keep the law without knowing God. If you are not knowing God, you are breaking the law. Okay? Just by definition of the law. Because it's a law of love. First commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. So no, you can't keep the law without knowing God because that's the first commandment okay? that he listed. Okay, um, Joshua, now I think, I, I looked at this before and it wasn't the right verse. Da, 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 da. Somewhere in Joshua. Nope. <laughs> Not right. Hmm? What does that say? Yeah, that's one place where it says it. Um, well, there's one, there's 2415. 24:15. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay? He seemed to think that the people were able to choose whether they were going to serve God or whether they were going to serve idols. Okay? Anyway... I forget where that verse is, but there was a verse that Joshua, that Joshua states that the people are able to keep all of the uh, commandments. Okay. 22.5? Yep. Thank you. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. You see that? It says love God before it says keep his commandments. <laughs> People were not intended to keep God's commandments without loving him. Okay? Thank you. I shall change my notes.
22.5. Okay, and it says, Walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So evidently Joshua thought that the people were able to keep the commandments of God if they loved God. Okay? Jesus thought this. John 14, verses 15 and 21. John 14, 15 and 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. When a person says to you that they love God, but they're having trouble in their life with sin, you can tell them, no, you really don't love him. You can start choosing to love him if you'd like, but your life says right now that you really don't love him. There was a girl one time in a coffee shop, and Wywammer was talking to her, and she said she was living in fornication. Okay? She was sleeping with people before she was, before she was married, and <clears throat> the Bible is against that. And the Bible says this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Okay? And so she said, well, I love Jesus, but... No, 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 no. And the guy said, no, you don't love Jesus. And she said, oh, but I do love Jesus. And, she, and he said, no, you don't love Jesus. Because he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you're not keeping his commandments. So you don't love him. Okay? But you can repent and start loving him if you'd like. Okay? He gives everybody the opportunity. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse, um, what I say? Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And a lot of people get the idea of abiding in Christ. They have these really mystical, strange ideas about what it means to abide in Christ. But in 1 John 3, I think it's verse 22, he gives a definition of abiding in Christ, and that is to keep God's commandments. The one who keeps his commandments is abiding in him. That's what it means. You love him, you keep, your, keep his commandments, you are abiding in him. You're staying in him. Psalm 4 and verse 4, David says, Tremble and do not sin. I mean, David thought that we could actually do that kind of thing, not sin. Tremble and do not sin. And say, well, isn't this all a, an Old Testament thing? Well, no, I quoted you from Jesus. But we'll take a look at uh, John here in the New Testament. 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, that means atoning sacrifice. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Okay, if anyone sins, he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That was what John expected, was that Christians would not sin. And if anyone sins, not when. He didn't expect people to sin. He didn't say when you sin. 
He said, if anyone sins, we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we can come back to him and ask his forgiveness and be forgiven. And then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Paul says if you're continuing, continuing in sin, you're not very sober-minded. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay? Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. So sin is not unavoidable. There are lots of places in the Bible where we are commanded to keep all the commandments of God, all of his ordinances, and have you ever noticed have you ever noticed that God lists absolutely no excuses in the Bible for sin? None. You can't claim it's because I'm a human being, because my parents uh, criticized me or rejected me or were nasty to me, because I was raised in the wrong part of the city. You can't claim it's because my family was uh, a certain nationality. Right? Ever notice that? See, people will say, I, I get people say, well, I lose my temper a lot, but then that's because I'm Irish. And I say, hogwash. That is because you have a habit of losing your temper. You are sinning against God and you need to change that habit. It is not because you're Irish, it's because you're selfish that you lose your temper. Right? God gives no excuse for losing your temper. He says it's a sin. The fool, the Bible says, always loses his temper. The wise man holds it back. Okay? The foolish person in the book of Proverbs is the person who knows what's right but doesn't do it. He may be a very intelligent person. You can have a, a genius that's a fool, according to the book of Proverbs. The wise person is the one who departs from evil, knows what's right to do, and he does it. Okay? You can have a person who has very little intelligence and very little schooling that can be a very wise person because he's departing from evil. Okay? The justice of God, eh? doesn't depend upon your intelligence. But you can choose to do what God wants you to do and you can be wise because you're departing from evil. Okay? So, um, yes. Where was I? <laughs> okay. um, yeah, you can't, you can't claim any kind of an excuse before God for your sin. When you've sinned, you've sinned, you're guilty. And God, because he's the kind of God that he is, will forgive you. We can never claim any kind of a demand for forgiveness or mercy. But because he's the kind of God that he is, we can come to him and ask him for forgiveness, given that there is an atonement that has been made. Which an atonement has been made, but we'll talk about that. Okay, number four, sin is not a disease. Sin is not a disease. You don't contract it. You don't pick it up from other people. You may learn selfish habit patterns by watching other people and then choosing to do it yourself, but your sin is still your fault. They are an in other people are an influence on you, but they cannot make you sin. There is no excuse for sin. So sin is not a disease. You don't contract it, such as you do the measles from other people or the flu. Everybody commits their own sin. Number five, sin is not temptation. 
there's a difference between temptation and sin. There's a difference between temptation and sin. Now, let me ask you a question. Remember the little test we took at the beginning? These things, good, evil, or neutral? Food, sex, sleep, money, friends, power, right? What about thoughts? You think about that. Are they good, evil, or neutral? It depends, huh? Does it? <laughs> Does it depend on what they are or what you do with them? No, well, you'll have to think about that. I'll let you think about it. I'm not going to answer that. You can think about it yourself. Okay? A temptation, a temptation is when something comes to your mind that you could do that is contrary to the law of God. A sin is when you do something that you know is contrary to the law of God. A temptation is when a thought comes to your mind about doing something contrary to the law of God. That is a temptation. It's presented to your mind that you could choose to do something contrary to the law of God. A sin is when you choose to do something contrary to the law of God. And it can be a sin. That, that choice can be a, a choice to think something. It can be a choice to do something, a choice to say something. But it's a choice. See? Okay, so a temp there's a big difference between difference between temptation and sin. And temptation is not sin because it says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And number six, sin is not the way you were born. Okay? Sin is not the way you were born. There have been differing views down through history as to the nature of man in this regard. And some people have viewed man as totally in the negative. The negative sign. Some have viewed man as born towards doing what is right. And they believe that man is going, is towards, going to go towards what is right by nature. Some people have believed that man is going to go towards what is negative by nature. But the common Jewish view... because of their understanding of the scripture, was that man was born neutral and he had to choose which way he was going to go. Okay? He had to choose which way he was going to go. Um, true, It's true that there are influences on us because the world is fallen, but I stick to the Jewish view myself and believe that man is neutral. And you, if you look very carefully concerning children in the Bible, you find things like... Um, like this. For the twin, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, what were they? Had they done? Any, if they haven't done anything good or bad, what are they? They're neutral. As far as their moral stand before God is concerned, that's Romans nine and verse ten. Um, in, I think it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah seventeen. Uh, no, 19.5. See, in the, 
19, 9, Jeremiah 19, verses 4 and 5, it says, They have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal. The blood of who? The innocent. Okay? You're not born guilty or born a sinner. That was Jeremiah 19, 4 and 5. Uh, Romans 7 and verse 9. Paul says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now when he says I died, that means that the rest of the verse, he must be speaking about spiritual life and death because he wrote the book of Romans, did he not? <laughs> so he's not talking about physical death when he says sin became alive and I died. He's talking about spiritual death, separation from God. But he says this, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, when he was a child, before he understood, see, it says that when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And so when he was a child, he was alive spiritually, he was not separated from God, and then the commandment came, he understood what was right and wrong, he chose to sin and he died. Okay? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Somebody stole Ephesians from the Bible. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in, it says here, in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You will probably not find uh, very many other places where that word in, in the Greek, is translated in. It was translated here in because of prejudice. The word is dia. It means through or by means of. And you were dead through or by means of your trespasses and sin. Paul says, sin became alive and I died. Okay? We die because of our sin. Not, we're not born that way. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly walked, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now the description of indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, does that give you the picture of a baby in a womb? Right? No, he's talking about adults, isn't he? Or at least people that can understand that it's wrong to do so, indulging the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And that is how you become, by nature, a child of wrath, even as the rest. You develop your sinful nature. No place does it say that the sins are passed down from the forefathers. That's a misunderstanding. It says the sins of the fathers will be visited and the word visit has to do with judgment or consequences all the way through the Old Testament, that Hebrew word. The sins of the forefathers will be visited unto the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. There is a condition involved. If you do not hate God, if you love God, they will not be visited upon you. In other words, the consequences of the sins that your parents have committed and the generations before will not be visited on you. They will not affect you if you love God. You need to take every verse in the Old Testament that has to do with that passage, of which there are many, and, and um, look at them all. 
And look at every place in the Bible in the Old Testament uses the word visit to see what that has to do with. The children of Israel started to say that God held children responsible for the sins of their parents. Jeremiah, excuse me, Ezekiel 18. He said, they started to say that, that children were held responsible for the sins of their parents. And God said, you shall no longer have any occasion. Are you listening? You shall no longer have any occasion to use this proverb against me in Israel. Because they were saying that God was unjust and God considered it a slander of his character. It was a slam against him to say that the children were responsible for what the parents had done. And then he gives, then he goes on through the rest of the chapter to explain his justice. Every man is responsible for his own sin. So you can look at Ezekiel 18. Every man is held individually responsible for his own sin. Um, Romans 5.12 Romans 5.12 is um, yeah, Romans 5.12 says, um, it's commonly quoted incorrectly. <laughs> I've had people look at the verse in the Bible and quote it incorrectly because they're so used to quoting it incorrectly. <laughs> I said, would you read this please? And the person read it and read it incorrectly. And I said, no, read it again. That's not what it says. And the person read it again and, it, and still read it incorrectly. And I said, you want to read that again? Uh, talk about reading the Bible with your blinders on. They couldn't even read the words that were on the page because they were so prejudiced theologically. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, why? Because all sin. Okay? Now, there's a problem. There's a problem with a um, little translation here, and the translation is not into English. The problem is the translation into Latin. You know, did you, that there was a problem with the translation into Latin? <laughs> the Latin translation that Augustine was working with did not translate the phrase epha from the Greek, did not translate it because. It translated it incorrectly into in whom. Which it could look like that, but then later scholarship in classical literature showed that epha actually should be translated because rather than in whom. So as far as Augustine was concerned, this verse said this, death spread through, death spread to all men in whom all sin. And he thought, well, there's only one specific person mentioned in this verse, and that's Adam. And so therefore, all men must have sinned in Adam. And so he propagated the idea that all men are guilty because they're human beings, and they're, but they're guilty because Adam sinned. Right out of a wrong translation into the Latin. You see? Because all sinned. That's why death spread to all men, because all sinned. Not because Adam sinned, but because all men followed his rebellion. Okay? Romans, uh, that's Romans 5.12. Genesis 3 talks about the curse and nowhere in that curse in Genesis 3 will you find anything about sin being passed on to other people or a sinful nature or anything like that. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that say all must sin? 
No, it says all have sinned. And in its context, it's actually talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. Not every single individual in the human race, but the groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, both in its limited context in Romans 3 and in the context of the first three chapters. Oh, I'll get to that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I know these questions. I spent two and a half years studying every one of these verses. Okay. Um, <laughs> she's holding up references here. Please explain this. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, that's another one that I've had a person actually look at the verse and read it incorrectly because <laughs> of their blinders. Um, where was I? Romans 3.23. In the larger context of Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul is saying the Gentiles have sinned, though they didn't have the law. The Jews have sinned, though they had the law. Chapter 3, everybody has sinned and they're all guilty before God. You see? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even in its limited context, he says, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. They've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? So it's a verb, not a noun, it's a verb. All have sinned, talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. It's not a noun and it doesn't say all must sin. Um, I don't have this down in my references, but it's just come to my mind and so it may be a question for you. There are verses in the Old Testament that say things like this. Um, Solomon, in his dedication of the temple, said um, that there is no man upon the earth who does right and sins not. Right? There is no man upon the earth that does right and sins not. That construction is exactly the same as thy word have I hid in my heart that I sin not against thee. But how is that translated? That I might not sin against thee. The purpose of hiding the word in your heart, memorizing God's word, is so that you won't sin. Right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not or may not sin against thee. And the other places where it says, where, like where Solomon says, there is no man upon the earth that does good and sins not, should be translated, there is no man upon the earth who does good and might not sin. In other words, we all have the capacity to sin. It is not a verse that determines that all men must sin. God nowhere says that we have to sin. He everywhere says don't sin, and it says repent if you do so. <laughs> and expect, and he calls us guilty for what we've done. You ever notice he never says repent tomorrow? Or repent uh, partially? No. It's, always, it's always completely, and it's always now. <laughs> Okay? Because there's no reason for sin. Okay, Romans 5, verses 18 and 19 is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which one? Oh, Romans 5, 18 and 19? The one I just gave. I thought you meant the one in, from Solomon. You can look that up in his dedication to the temple. Of the temple. Romans 5, 18 and 19. This is really interesting. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. <gasps> Is that saying the opposite of what I've been saying? Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification to life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's disobedience in the context, as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. What does that mean? The words the many in Greek mean everybody. 
It's just another phrase for everybody, the many. What does that mean? Does that mean everybody is condemned because Adam sinned? It seems to say that. The problem with this is, is that if you say everybody is condemned because Adam sinned, if you translate the second half of the verse the same way, it means everybody is going to be saved because Jesus died. Is that true? No. What do we, what do we mean when we say that, what do you think it means when it says that through the righteous act of one person, the many will be made righteous? An example, it's a little bit more than that. The potential or the occasion for every person to be made righteous. And if you're going to translate that that way, then you have to be fair to the other half of the verse and say, through Adam, we were all given the potential to be sinners. He provided an occasion, a situation for us all to rebel against God, whereas Jesus has provided an occasion for us to be righteous before him. So let's read this again. So then as through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. What does that mean? Through the transgression of Adam, he provided an occasion for all men to be condemned. He provided a situation. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to life to all men. Through Jesus' death on the cross, there, there was the occasion made, the possibility for people to be made righteous. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam provided an occasion for everybody to be a sinner. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Jesus, through his obedience, provided a way for everybody to be saved. Okay? And you can take that down through, um, starting with verse 15, all the way through verse 19. You can take that and put it into two columns. And it, you either say that both sides are unconditional, or you say that both sides are conditional. It's not really fair to take half the verse and say this is conditional and that's unconditional. That's not very good Bible interpretation. But if you take the first half of the verse to be unconditional, then you have to take the second half to be unconditional and you must be a universalist. You must believe that everyone will be saved so we can all go home and stop going and preach the gospel. Okay, um, so that's Romans 5, 18 and 19. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. can't spend too much more time on this. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, that's your children, who, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. He talked about little ones, their sons, having no knowledge of good or evil. The, old, the closest thing I found to an age of accountability in the Bible was 20 years old. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? 20 years old. I wonder exactly what they did for the first 20 years. Um, Genesis 8 and verse 21 Genesis 8 21. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart 
hates evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Evil from his youth. Okay? Now, there is a verse that says that people go astray from the womb speaking lies. But if, you're, if you take that as a literal statement rather than a poetic statement, then you have to say that children are born talking. Now, is that true? No. So, obviously, the Bible is making a poetic statement that from, the ver- from very early age, children learn to, to tell lies. Okay? But it is not saying that they actually are born speaking lies. Otherwise, you have to say, literally, children are born speaking, communicating. Like that. Okay? Um, so, I think this makes it clearer, the Genesis passage makes it clearer, that it's from their youth that they are evil. Okay? Children can learn to be evil at a very early age but that doesn't mean that they're born that way. Romans 9.11. Romans 9.11. Oh, I already read that, didn't I? Didn't I read that? Isn't it about the twins? Yeah. Romans 9.11, the twins, yeah. Romans 9, verses 10 and 11. Romans 7 and verse 9. Oh, I already talked about that. Paul said, I was alive apart from the law once. Hosea 6 and verse 7. Hosea 6 and verse 7 says, All they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. All they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Your version might say, like men, but if you look in the margin, it will say, literally, Adam. All they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. We sin against what we know is right, just as Adam sinned against what he knew was right. Now, one other passage that's been brought up here by one of the sisters that people have trouble with is Psalm 51 and verse 5. Okay? Behold, I was, what? Shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was shapen in iniquity. The word shapen means to be formed or molded by iniquity. Now, that doesn't tell you whether it was after or during or before, whatever. It doesn't give you a time reference. And so it could just as well be that once he was born, the environment molded him towards being something that was evil. The occasion of Adam, that Adam provided. But it says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And you know, the Jews, because of re- reading Hebrew, have never said that anything about original sin from that verse. They've never said anything like that. Because the words, in sin, modify the words, my mother my mother was in sin who conceived me. And the Jews have always understood this verse to be saying that, that David was out of his, the anguish of repenting over his sin of committing adultery was saying, I too was born in this way. And that could have been why Jesse did not want Samuel to see David. David and Samuel had to say, do you have any more sons? <laughs> eh? Because Samuel had said, let all your sons pass before me. But he left David out taking care of the sheep. Now, why did he do that? Probably not just for the sheep. It could have been that he was born out of wedlock. And so he, he didn't know whether to consider him his son or not. See? And, or he was ashamed of him. David said, my mother was in sin who conceived me. And so I've had people actually you know, read that incorrectly. You were born in sin and shapen in iniquity. And I said, it doesn't say that. I said, read it again. And this woman read it again and she read the wrong thing. 
And I said, read it again. And so she finally got it right. She said, it doesn't make any difference. You're a heretic and you need to go down to the altar and repent. <laughs> and I went, well... <laughs> you know, it's trying to be fair with the Bible. Okay. What happened to me, the way I got straightened out on this, it took two and a half years, but the way I got straightened out was by an unbeliever. <laughs> Unbelievers have a wonderful way of keeping your theology correct. <laughs> Don't they? <laughs> You see, they won't let you get by with anything that's sneaky, will they? Because they're always looking for an excuse. And you have to be careful not to give them any excuses, because the Bible doesn't, does it? And so this, I was talking to this unbeliever on the street, and he said that I told him, he said, why am I a sinner? And I said, because you're born that way. And he said, you mean I'm born in such a way that it's natural for me to sin? That that's, I just sin because that's what I'm to do, and that's natural for me? I said, yes, it's what you do. And he said, oh, he said, so God judges me and sends me to hell for doing what is natural for me to do that I can't avoid. Well, what could I say? You know, he said, no, thank you. I don't want a God like that. Walked away. And so I thought, the next time I meet somebody with a question like that, I am going to have an answer for this person from the Bible. And two and a half years later, <laughs> God gave me a grace period of two and a half years without meeting anybody that asked that question. And uh, I studied in between and I came to a conclusion. So after studying all the verses that people say talk about original sin. Um, well, by the way, there's another verse that says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It is not talking about spiritual life and death there. It's talking about physical resurrection in the, in the, in the context of 1 Corinthians 15. That's another verse that people use to try to support the idea that you're born with a sinful nature. Um, okay, I'd not say, by the way, that you're not born in a corrupted environment. We are born into a corrupted environment. We've got selfish people taking care of us okay, with selfish habit patterns. We have uh, people around us all the time that are being selfish, bad attitudes. We have the effect of sin on our own bodies. Our bodies are corrupted. But nonetheless, we're still neutral before God. And although everything's, the cards are sort of stacked against us, we still have the opportunity to choose to do what is right or to do what is wrong. And we've chosen to do what is wrong. But anyway, I'll get back to telling you about this guy. Mm -hmm. I met this fellow on, the, on a beach in California, Santa Cruz, California, on the beach. And I... Have you been there? No. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I walked up to this guy and tried to hand him a track. And he said, no, thank you. And I said, oh, okay. So I tried to hand his friend a track. He said, no, thanks. And I said, okay. So I make it a point, if somebody doesn't take a track, I just walk away. Because if they don't want to, I don't. Okay. Unless God specifically says, I want you to talk to this person. So I walked, and I said, well, that's fine. I won't force anything on you. And I walked over to the next person, and there was a, a black couple, black a man and woman, sitting on a, a park, not a bench, park bench, but a bench. And I said, um, Can I, may I give you this to read? And the guy said, sure. So he takes it and starts reading it, and the girl took one too. And I started sharing with them about Jesus. And the other people, the other two guys that had refused the tracks were sitting about 10 feet away. And uh, while I was talking, I was getting really excited sharing about Jesus and the guy was getting excited as he was listening, about Jesus, listening to the gospel. And so we were going on. And this fellow that had refused the track came over and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, when you're finished talking here, would you come back and talk with us? And I said, okay, if you want to. So when I, um, when I got finished talking with the one couple, I went back and talked with the two guys and as I talked, I shared about how um, we've rebelled against God and, and we didn't deserve to have Jesus die for us and, and yet God loved us and gave himself for us so we could be free from sin. I was describing a little bit of, of the atonement and stuff. 
And, uh, and he said, I only have one question. And that is this. You said that you didn't deserve to have Jesus die for you. And I said, that's right. None of us have deserved to have Jesus die for us. And he said, well, if you were born with a sinful nature, and I said, I didn't say that, did I? And he said, well, no, but you do believe that as a Christian, don't you? And I said, no. I said, there are lots of Christians who believe that, but I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches us we can choose to do right or wrong. We have chosen to do what is wrong. Therefore, we are guilty for what we've chosen to do, and there's no excuse. And you can see his whole argument that he used to shoot Christians down because he was, what he was going to do was this. If God put us in a position where we had to sin, then he owed us Jesus to get us out of it. And he can't send anybody to hell for sin because it wasn't their choice. They had to sin because they were born that way. Okay? And you could see his whole argument go, and as Harry Kahn says, you could see the conviction right here. You, know? you could see it set in. He was convicted. And what, what is he going to do? He's guilty before God. And the only thing he can do is ask God for forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus has done. So I was glad that by the time that came around, I actually had an answer for the person. I said, no, the Bible doesn't say that you're born with a sinful nature that makes you sin. The Bible says that you're guilty because you could have chosen to do otherwise and you did not. Nobody made you steal. No nature made you steal. Nothing made you steal. You chose to steal and you're guilty for it and you deserve to be punished. Okay, so what is sin then? Sin is a choice. <laughs> I think you've gotten that point by now. Sin is a choice. Let me read you some statements in the Bible as to what sin is. 1 John 3 and verse 4. These are the only five statements I could find in the Bible about what sin is. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. All lawlessness is sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. The word transgress means to step over a pre-described line. To step over a pre-described line. It's like somebody makes a mark on the sidewalk and says, don't step over that. And you go, you see? That's transgression. It means to step across a pre-described line. Sin is the transgression of the law. It's a choice. James 4 and verse 17. Therefore, to the person who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's a choice to not do what you know is right. James 4.17 To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's a choice. 1 John 5.17 All unrighteousness or injustice is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. It's injustice. First John five seventeen. Romans fourteen twenty three. Romans fourteen twenty three. We talked about this under the principles of conscience. Whatever is done in doubt, if you eat something and you really doubt whether or not you should eat it, that is sin. Whatever is done in doubt is sin. Romans 14:23. It's a choice to do something when you when you're not quite convinced in your conscience that you should do it. Whatever is done in doubt is sin. Proverbs 24, 20, 24 verse 9. Proverbs 24 verse 9. The thought of foolishness or the devising of folly to sit down and think about doing wickedness is sin. 
to think, to devise foolishness is sin. So when you're counseling people and they're thinking about doing sin in the future, then you need to counsel them that that is also a sin and they need to repent of contemplating sin in the future. A lot of people have trouble with sin because they contemplate it too much. <laughs> right? They think about it too much. And so if you're contemplating sinning, that's a sin too and you need to stop right there and repent. If you're contemplating sinning. Proverbs 21.4 gives you some examples of this. A high look or arrogance. A proud heart to be proud. And those are called the high look and the proud heart are called the lamp of the wicked. It's the only light that he has is his pride. The high look and the proud heart are the lamp of the wicked. It's the only light that he has. Proverbs 21 and verse 4. Sin is a choice. Sin is a conscious choice. It's a conscious choice. And you're judged according to your knowledge. According to your knowledge. Luke 12, 47 and 48. Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it that is his master's will, and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given, much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. In other words, you are judged according to your knowledge and according to your ability. You are judged according to your knowledge and your ability. You are responsible for what you know, you know and are able to do. You are not responsible for something you are not able to do. You can't even perceive yourself responsible for something you're not able to do. Right? You are responsible to jump over this house. You can't perceive yourself responsible for something that you were unable to do. Okay? And any person who would say, if you don't jump over this house, I'm going to chop your head off, you say, would be unjust, wouldn't he? to do that. And yet lots of people say that God has said, you shall keep all these commandments and all these ordinances knowing that man couldn't keep them and then sends them to hell for not keeping them. There are lots of people who say that kind of thing. They say that man can't keep the law and yet God sends him to hell for not keeping it. May I ask what kind of a God that is that would do something like that? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham said. Okay, um, so then you're judged according to your knowledge. You can't be responsible for something you don't know. And you can't be responsible for something that you're not able to do. So sin is a choice. It's a conscious choice. It's a conscious choice contrary to your knowledge of what is right and wrong. Okay, now for the last few minutes, the last half hour or so, we're going to go on until quarter to one, so don't be anxious if we go over time. Okay? You're looking at your little watch. Um, for the last time, the last few moments here, I want to talk about the problem that God has in being able to forgive us if we sin. We have rebelled against the law of God. For this disobedience, there is punishment, and we justly deserve the punishment that we receive. There's no excuse 
for our disobedience to the law of God. We can't claim any kind of an excuse. We're, we've done it. We're guilty. We were free when we did it and we're guilty. And we deserve to be punished. We deserve to be excluded from the privileges of God's government and, and excluded from His presence. So we deserve to go to hell for our selfishness. We have committed ourselves as enemies of God, the Bible says. We've committed ourselves to our selfishness and rebellion against God. And so we deserve to go to hell. The point is, God in his justice must send us to hell. But God in his loving kindness and mercy does not want to. Because he wants to maintain fellowship with us and does not want to see us suffer in that way. And so God, out of his great heart of love for us, wanted to find a way to be able to forgive man. And you say, well, why doesn't he just forgive him? Okay? Well, what happens if you just forgive somebody? Huh? Well, the, the law becomes invalid. It's part of it. They'll go out and do it again. They'll keep on doing it. See? It is not good for the person that is forgiven. It's not good for the person who is forgiven if you simply forgive without any conditions involved. Okay? Now we're going to take it one step farther. What if the person comes to you and says, I repent. I'll change. What if this guy comes to God and goes, God, I recognize that my life is wrong. I recognize I've been selfish, disobedient, I deserve to go to hell, but from now on, I'm not going to sin. I'm, I want to choose to love you and, and do what is right. Now then, is God free to forgive the person? No. God is not free to forgive the person. See, you're assuming that there's an atonement. We're talking before any atonement. Okay? Without, without something that intervenes that allows God to be free justly, to forgive the person, he cannot forgive the person even on the basis of repentance. Even if they rebel, uh, excuse me, rebel, even if they're obedient for the rest of their life. Well, why is that? What is our responsibility before, with God and men? Love, we shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So that is our responsibility. Here is where you're born. There's where you come to the knowledge of the law and rebel against it. Here's where you're selfish, Here's where you repent. Okay? For the rest of your life, you do what is right. What were you supposed to do here? This is your section of disobedience. Okay? This is your repentance here. Okay? Section of disobedience. What were you responsible to do there? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? So, and then what, were you doing, what are you doing over here? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The problem is that no matter what you do here, you can never develop a plus sign because you can never do more than your responsibility. It takes everything you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The only thing that you can do is keep your responsibilities or fail. You cannot do more than what you're responsible to do. So you can never develop a plus sign that will equal out anything in the past that was disobedience. And so what is God supposed to do about this that deserves to be judged? Even if you repent and you live the rest of your life doing what is right, God still must send you to hell for what you did in breaking the law. 
because that's what you justly deserve. You say, can't God forgive me? No, He can't forgive you. And here's the problem. If He forgives you, He does you a very big injustice. He is not loving if He simply forgives you on the basis of repentance. And here is why. relates to what Fred said. Okay? The sanctions of the law directed to your mind are the only method that God has of trying to express government over you. Now, do we need this government or do we not? Yes. God gave us the government because of His love for us, because we need it. Right? God, God expressed government over us because we need it, because we can't run our own lives. He gave us the laws, directed the sanctions to our minds, tells us, the soul that sins, it shall die. That is how He governs, that's how He governs us, and we need it, right? Now, what happens in the mind of a person when they are forgiven after they've broken a law? What happens with their mind in respect to the law? Okay, it, it, it appears in their mind as if the law has no consequence. Keep thinking. Huh? They disrespect it. The general thing here is that the law begins to lose its effect. The consequences of the law directed to the person's mind begins to lose its effect because the person has been forgiven. So if God were to forgive us Without, any, without doing anything to overcome that problem, what would happen is this. Thank you. What would happen is this. The law to us would no longer read the soul that sins it shall die, but at its least it would read the soul that sins it may die, and at its worst it would read the soul that sins it shall live. And so God has compl completely changed the law if He forgives without doing something. He completely changes the law and He obliterates the government that He has over man. And when He does that, it's not good for us because we need the government. So God's dilemma is, how do I forgive man and at the same time keep some kind of government over man which He needs for His well-being? You see? And so his concern, his concern was that he be able to forgive us and at the same time uphold his government over us because we need the government to be upheld. I want to go through this a couple more times to get the point across. When a person is taken on a drug charge and they come before a judge and the person deserves uh, five years in jail, but the judge says, well, since this is your first offense, and um, you're very young, and I feel like having mercy on you, I'm going to trust you as you say that you recognize that you did what was wrong, and I am going to allow you to be on probation instead of going to jail for five years, which will have to be on three years of probation. Now, what, because of the extension of mercy, okay, what does that do in the mind of the person who was caught? It relieves him of what? It relieves him of the consequences, but it does more than that. It relieves, yeah, he got away with it. It, leaves him, it relieves him of the responsibility to obey the law. The law still says the same, 
But the effect on his mind, the law hasn't changed. Still five years for drug charge, the drug uh, conviction. But the effect on his mind is that, it, that the law doesn't really mean what it says. Because you can get away with it. And then when he goes and tells his friends, who are also dealing in drugs, what happened because of this judge, what does it encourage them to do? Continue in their drug traffic. And it encourages him to repeat the same sin. I can sin with impunity, that means, and get away with it. Okay? And so what has happened is, when mercy is expressed in a temporal government, and it'll always be this way, because a temporal government cannot offer an atonement, when mercy is expressed, justice is sacrificed. And when justice is strictly expressed, mercy is sacrificed. It's always the problem. Okay? And so when someone is forgiven, or mercy is expressed, the effect of the law on the person's mind is severely weakened. The effect of the law on the person's mind is severely weakened, and thus the government over them, through that influence, is abolished, and the order in the society begins to break down. The order in the society begins to break down. We are finding this out the hard way in California. For so long, they have made laws that protect the criminal and I think criminals should be protected. They're human beings and they have rights. The, but the, the laws have been made to protect the criminal, but there hasn't been an equal increase in law to protect the victim. And so eventually what happened was, it's better to be a criminal than a victim because the law protects you and it doesn't protect the other person. And if you, as a victim, try to protect yourself, you're very likely to end up worse off than the criminal who attacked you the way California law is right now. And it's because the, the consequences of the law became less and less for shooting people, for killing people, it became better and better for the criminal to not only steal your purse, but shoot you and kill you too because it eliminated the evidence. You see? Because the person could shoot you and probably get three years in jail, maybe five years in jail. And then they're out again to shoot somebody else. And so the person goes, well, three years, but I might not even get caught. Okay? So they may as well just shoot you and eliminate the evidence. They can't, you can't testify against them if, they're, if you're dead. Right? And so as the decrease in consequences took place and they were not carried out, then what happened was the effect on people's mind was weakened and people started doing more and more violent crime. Okay? Now, looking at the opposite side of that, I'm not going to, saying that this is just because I don't think it's just punishment, but what Hitler did was when he came to power, there were a lot of women on the street who were being molested or having their purses snatched on the street because of the financial situation and stuff. People were stealing a lot. When Hitler came to power, he said, anyone who is caught and convicted of molesting a woman or of snatching a purse will be executed. And after a couple of months and a few executions that they made public through the papers, suddenly it was safe for women to walk on the street again. Because when you contemplate the idea that I will be killed if I steal this woman's purse and I'm caught, you think about stealing a woman's purse, don't you? More than once. You think about it. Now, I don't think that that's just punishment, but it illustrates the principle that when people recognize that the consequences will be carried out, 
then there is an effect on their minds. If the consequences are eliminated because the person is forgiven or mercy is extended, the law is weakened and the government is then abolished over the person's mind. And God, in his love, would not do that to us. He could not do that to us because he's a loving God and a just God. He could not take away the government that we need for our well-being. He wouldn't do that. Consequently, he cannot simply forgive on the basis of repentance because he must do something about what has happened in the past. He must do something about the consequences of the law that we have broken. You beginning to get the idea? And so God has a dilemma. How do I forgive man and at the same time, at the same time, uphold my government over man which he needs for his well-being? It's the kind of problem that God had. Now I'm going to name a few problems that God did not have in being able to forgive us. If I can find them. Mm-hmm. Hello, where are you? Where are you? Here we go. I'm going to name some problems that God did not have in being able to forgive us. One, it was not that God was unforgiving. It was not that God was unforgiving. Okay? Some people get the idea that God somehow didn't want to forgive us. That God was, had some kind of vindictive attitude towards us. That his attitude became something other than love towards us because we sinned. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes him very sad. It grieves God, but God did not change his attitude towards us because we sinned. He still loved us just the same. He didn't change his attitude. Some people have got this idea that God the Father became angry with us when we sinned. And then what happens is, Jesus goes up to God the Father who's going, Wow! Let me at him! I'll destroy him! You know? And Jesus comes up to him and goes, There, there, Father. I'll go and I'll die so that you can settle down. So that you can forgive him. Okay? And people actually, there are actually hymns, things that we sing. I was suffering under God's angry frown. That kind of thing. And there are hymns that we sing. People teach this kind of thing. And it's an awful view of God's character. There is a more subtle way that people teach this, which is also unbiblical. They say that not only did, God, did man need to be reconciled to God, but God needed to be reconciled to man. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that. You look at every place the word reconciled is used, and it's always concerning our being reconciled to God or a, a brother being reconciled to a brother. It never says that God needed to be reconciled to us. Had he sinned? Had he become bitter? Had he done something that was wrong? Did he lose his temper? No. It's not that God is unwilling to forgive. God wants to forgive us. That's not the problem that he faces in forgiving us. There's no problem, no fault in God's character. Second thing, it is not that man's sin is too great to be forgiven. It is not that man's sin is too great to be forgiven. God can forgive anything except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I will define for you according to its context. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to call the works of the Holy Spirit 
the works of the devil in order to try to keep people away from Jesus. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to call the works of the Holy Spirit the works of the devil in order to keep people from believing in Jesus. Now, the first thing that will probably come to your mind is when people have said that speaking in tongues is of the devil. Let me ask the question. Are they saying that in order to keep people from Jesus? No. In most cases, see, I was thrown out of a church because I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and they told me they believed it was uh, demonic. And their purpose for telling me that they believed it was demonic and trying to get me to stop was they believed I was going away from Jesus. And so their motive, their purpose, was to try to keep me close to Jesus. That was their motive. And they, I believe they were simply responding to the incorrect information that they had been taught. Unbiblical information. And so I, I don't believe that that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit when people who have been taught in a certain denomination, they've been taught that tongues are of the devil and they just repeat that without looking in the Bible for themselves. <laughs> they just repeat what the pastor said. Okay? Uh, that is not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. See, the, the Pharisees said that Jesus was casting out demons by the prince of the devils by Satan, in order to keep people from believing in Jesus as the Messiah, because they knew who he was. Okay, so then it's not because man's sin is too great. The Bible says every sin and blasphemy which men utter will be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I've only met two people that have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They knew that they had done it, they were continuing in it, and God would not let me even pray for them, because there wasn't any hope for them anymore, but they knew that they had done it. If someone comes to you and says, or maybe you have this problem sometimes, maybe I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I ask people, are you worried about it? Yes, I'm worried about it. Okay, then you haven't done it. Because if you'd done it, you wouldn't be worried about it because the Holy Spirit would not be dealing with you anymore. That you are worried about it is an indication that you haven't done it. Okay, so if you've ever worried about that, you haven't done it. <laughs> and you can tell other people that because the Holy Spirit stops dealing with you because there is, why should he waste his time? There, is, there will be no forgiveness. Okay, um, third thing, it is not that man doesn't seek God, which the Bible says, man does not seek God in his rebellion and selfishness. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. It's Romans 3.10, or something like and following, there is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. That's not a problem, though, because God seeks after man. God, in his great love for us, seeks after us. He pursues us in his love. Jesus is the true light that enlightens every man who comes into the world. The problem is not that, God doesn't seek, that man doesn't seek God because God seeks man. So it's not a problem that man doesn't seek God. And the fourth thing, it's not that man is unable to repent. Man is very well able to repent, and he's choosing not to do so. A lot of people think there's something wrong with man's will, that he can't choose to repent, and so God has to either make him be saved, or he won't be saved. That's not true. God commands us to repent, and never indicates anywhere in the Bible that we are not able to do so. So what are the problems then? We've already talked about them, really. The, first, the four problems are like this. God has to be just to four things. 
First thing he has to be just to is his government. He has to be just to his government. He cannot forgive man and at the same time break down his government over man because that is not for man's well-being. He cannot forgive man and at the same time break down his government over man because that is not for man's well-being. And so God must be just to his government. His government is loving, correct. Paul the Apostle says, what about the law then? The law is holy and just and good. The law is holy and just and good. If you have any other attitude towards the law of God than that, your attitude is wrong. The Bible says the law is holy and just, it's fair and good. And if you have a negative attitude towards the law, you'd better get it in line with the Bible. Okay? Paul the Apostle says, through the preaching of faith, do we abolish the law? No, we establish the law. The preaching of faith is not contrary to the law. We establish the law through the preaching of faith. That's okay. God must be just to his government. Second thing is, God must be just to his character. God must be just to his character, and it, looks, it comes out this way. If God is going to bring man back to himself, when man sins, he gets a distorted view of God's character. And if man is going to come back into relationship with God, that wrong view of God's character must be straightened out in the mind of man when he comes back to, when he comes back to God. Otherwise, why would man want to have a relationship with God if he thinks God's an ogre, or God is a crumb, or God is unfair? You see? God's always picking on people. If he thinks God is like that, he's not going to come back to God. Or if he does come back, he's going to come out of fear or he's going to come uh, with a strained relationship with God. And so God must be just to his character, both being a loving and just God, and he also must be just to his character in man's mind, where it has been distorted. Third thing, he must be just to man's selfishness. He must be just to man's selfishness. Man must come to the place where he says, I am selfish. I have rebelled against the law of God. Because if God allows man to go on in his selfishness and forgives him at the same time, it would not be good for the human being. It would not be good for the man. So man must recognize his selfishness is wrong, that it's destructive, that it hurts him, and he must be willing to turn away from that must be brought to the place of brokenness, if you want to say that, over his selfishness and his sin. Recognizing that God's way of living is the right way to live. And number four, he must be just to man's free will. When he brings man back to himself, he must leave man free to choose whether he will love God or not, whether he will come back to God or not, because if, he, if God forces man to do anything, he makes him less than the being that he wanted him to be. So he must be just to his government, his character, man's selfishness, and the whole time must be just to man's free will, leaving him free to choose or to rebel against God. Okay, let's stop there. <clears throat>